In the Flagstaff Citizens Cemetery, you will find a memorial and mass burial for the victims of a tragic mid-air collision between two airliners over the Grand Canyon in the western United States. All 128 people on board both flights perished in the accident. The remains of the people aboard the Transworld Airlines flight were brought to Flagstaff to be interred together. That's where we are headed today. What lies beneath? The deadly Grand Canyon crash of June 30th, 1956. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. and Taffa Viles. I am your host, Lachelle. And this week, I have Taylor with me. Hey, Taylor. (laughs) Hey. It's good to have you back, sis. (laughs) Good to be back. We're talking about really a sad story today. It is tragic. (laughs) It happened in 1956. You know, usually... People in a local cemetery are the ones that lived and worked in that community, and you find stories about them in that area, right? Yeah. But sometimes there is just not a way to send them all home. Mm -hmm. And this is one of those times when the tragedy was so big that they had to bury them somewhere close. So one of the flights is all buried in the Flagstaff Cemetery. So the Flagstaff Cemetery is called the Flagstaff Citizens Cemetery, and there are burials there from the 1800s. It has lots of pine trees, the ponderosa pines <laughs> of course. that Flagstaff is known for, and there are some places that are kind of grassy. There's a lot of things that are very Flagstaff and very Arizona. You have things like petrified wood. Oh, Makes sense. You know, a lot of just a big (laughs) piece of petrified wood Mm -hmm. will be someone's marker, maybe with a little plaque. There's a lot of sandstone. A lot of the sandstone markers, it kind of goes one of both ways. They either hold up really well or or not at all. They flake completely off and you can't see any of the names that are on there. And so those are kind of I mean, it's in the name, sandstone. You would think that. Right. People would be deterred Mm, from using that. But I get that. Yeah. Um, A lot of native plants. You'll see yucca plants, which are native Hmm. to Arizona. Um, Some cactus, even though we're in the mountains of Arizona, it's still that high desert. There's a veteran section, of course. There's a section for the Masons. Mm. There's the older kind of pioneer sections. There's actually two baby lands, an Hmm. older one and a newer one, which, yes, very, very heartbreaking. We've talked about the cemetery a couple times. We talked about it with the Flagstaff Ghost Tour and the walk-ups. 
and mm-hmm. the Weatherfords. I did find his grave not very long ago, kind of by accident. So that was kind of fun. And then also some of the Navajo code talkers that we talked about oh, that's were also right. in the veterans section. That's right. So this is a part of the cemetery that I've been wanting to talk about and finally getting around to that. It's a memorial to the one plane, the TWA flight. You walk up a couple steps. It's a little bit raised. There's some tall trees around it. One section, just pure grass Mm. with a little chain going around it so that Mm. you don't walk across it. And then it has some beautiful shrubs and plants. It's very, very nice. The wall around it and everything just just done really well. Two memorial plaques. One of them says, on June 30th, 1956, a TWA constellation and a United Airlines DC-7 collided over the Grand Canyon. The 128 passengers and crew members aboard both aircraft perished. This site is a common burial and memorial to 66 of the 70 TWA passengers and crew. The other plaque says, in memory of, and has all of the names of those that were on the TWA flight with the date of the accident. Many names that were very common to the 1950s, like Mildred, Janice, Lois, and Sharon, (laughs) David, William, Robert, Jeffrey. And there next to it, kind of tucked into the plaque a little bit, was a photo of a young woman that's left there on it. And it's in black and white. And she's wearing what looks to be a stewardess uniform, a cap and a suit dress with white high heels. (laughs) Very cute. It's been laminated. And it says me written in cursive under the photo, like she had sent it to a family member. Oh, and it just really brought that human element that we're always looking for, right? Mm -hmm. And wondering about who these individuals were and what they went through. We want, you know, those personal stories. It's like, as I looked up the story on the crash, I found so much on the crash, Mm -hmm. but hardly anything about the people that were in the crash that died in this horrible way. And I've been working all week on trying to find their individual stories. Yeah. But anyway, so I did find some and And that was good, but it was really neat to find this little photo that someone had left there as a memorial to someone that had died there. That's sweet that somebody did do that. On June 30th, 1956, Trans World Airlines Flight 2, a four-engine super constellation en route to Kansas City, took off with 70 people aboard from Los Angeles International Airport. The captain was Jack S. Gandy, 41, and was a veteran pilot for Transworld Airlines with 14,922 hours total time Hmm. and 7,208 hours in the Lockheed Constellation. So, you know, he... He was good. (laughs) He was very veteran. He knew what he was doing. Yeah. 
Captain Gandhi had been with TWA since 1939 and became a captain on DC-3s in 1942. And having served active duty during World War II, he also served in the U.S. Naval Reserve from 1937 to 1954. So he was a veteran, too. Candy was really familiar with the route on June 30th. He had flown it more than 177 times. As they took off, the flight controllers told Captain Gandhi to fly at 19,000 feet. Three minutes later, United Airlines DC-7 Flight 718 took off with 58 people from the same airstrip, and they were en route to Chicago. Air traffic control told its captain Robert Shirley to fly at 21,000 feet. Captain Robert Shirley was 48 years old and had been with United since 1937. He had accumulated 16,492 flight hours up to this time. Both pilots had filed flight plans that deviated from the standard monitored airways in favor of more direct routes that would intersect near the Grand Canyon, but with the 2,000 foot of vertical distance between them. So we've got the United Airlines DC-7 at 21,000 feet, and the TWA Super Constellation was to fly at 19,000 feet. Should be fine as long as everybody was watchful. From what I read, the airspace over the 15-mile-wide canyon actually makes for a rougher flight. So many think that these pilots were probably taking their passengers for the grand view, the scenic flight, so to speak. I see what you did there, the grand. The grand view. (laughs) I read that in the 1950s, it was not only common for a pilot to modify his flight plan away from established airways, but to also alter his course so that he could offer his passengers and himself a magnificent view of the Grand Canyon, which, I mean, from the air, it is really amazing. I've flown over it myself. You have? Yeah, a couple times. I have never flown over the Grand Canyon that I know of. <laughs> I could have when it was dark, I guess, maybe once, but right. I don't think so. Well, on this day, the Grand Canyon weather, it had said to provide a reasonably clear sky dotted with billowing thunderheads up to 35,000 feet. After a while, Captain Gandhi asked for permission to move his super constellation up to 21,000 feet to avoid turbulence. The Los Angeles Air Traffic Control denied the request. They tell him that there is already another large aircraft overtaking him at that elevation. Then again, after a while, Captain Gandhi asked for permission to fly higher. He asked for 1,000 on top, which meant a request to rise 1,000 feet above the cloud cover. This time, the Los Angeles controller said yes, but he did make sure to warn him that United Airlines Flight 718 was at 21,000 feet in the same region was overtaking him and flying in the same direction. They would be much closer, and now they were flying on what was called visual flight rules. It would be his responsibility to avoid the DC-7. A half hour later, he made his second routine call-in, TWA-2 over Lake Mojave at 10.55, 1,000 on top at 21,000 feet, estimating Painted Desert 1131. An air traffic controller in Salt Lake City heard this and noted to himself that TWA-2 and United 718 
We're now at the same altitude and in the same neighborhood of about a 100 mile wide airspace. But apparently this type of situation was fairly common at the time and he turned his attention elsewhere. That doesn't seem smart, but what do I know? I'm not a air traffic control man. <laughs> well, both aircrafts are now nearing the Grand Canyon. And the next call air traffic control received was from the United 718 at 1128 checking in as they neared Tuba City, which is a town on the Navajo Reservation about 50 miles east of the canyon. Four minutes later, a westbound United flight heard a broken transmission from United Airlines Flight 718. We are going... And then there was static. Then nothing. There were three tourists that saw strange things in the sky that day, Jay Seifer was driving near Flagstaff and he later told the Civil Aeronautics Board investigators that he had seen the two planes converge in the sky as if stuck together and then seconds later they disappeared behind some mountains. A woman named Blanche England who was driving near Winslow reported that all at once I saw a great puff of smoke. Something came out of the sky like a parachute and something came down with smoke following after it. The smoke spread out just like a parachute opening up. The object that came down didn't come straight down. It came down at sort of an angle. The third was Frederick Riley, who was driving up by the south rim of the canyon, and he said that he saw the collision actually happen. He said, quote, This plane here... I'm sorry, but it, it just makes you want to say... This plane here... <laughs> I know, this is not a funny episode, but this part it is, is like, this plane here peeled right off and went over like this. And that's just the way that you, you hear it in your mind as you read it. But, okay. He said, this plane here peeled right off and went over like this. It looked to me as if it had bent, broken. It didn't glide at all. It tipped over and went right straight down. The other took off at a gliding angle. It looked like it possibly kept on the same general flight, and then it tipped over and went down. He said he feared what he had seen was a trick of the light, and at first didn't even report it. By now, both United and TWA authorities were very concerned. Neither eastbound flight had checked in, and both were failing to answer radio calls. Search planes took off and began to scour the region. Meanwhile, a tourist at the Desert View lookout near the park's east entrance noticed a column of smoke near the confluence of the Little Colorado and the Colorado River. At the time, huge parts of the country had no radar tracking flights, including above the Grand Canyon. Planes weren't typically equipped with tracking beacons or the flight data recorders, the Mm -hmm. black box, so it wasn't immediately known that a disaster had unfolded. It wasn't until the planes were gone for some time without their manual reporting of their position that they suspected something was really wrong. The wreckage was first spotted many hours later by Henry and Palin Hudgen, brothers who flew short taxi flights for Grand Canyon Airlines. They spotted smoke rising from within the canyon, but not knowing about the missing planes, they dismissed it as a brush fire caused by lightning from the earlier storm. I'm sorry, but we live in Arizona and you're just even going to brush off a brush fire? (laughs) Right. That doesn't make sense to me. We're in a place that burns down when you even think of fire, so... (laughs) It's... That's... Yeah, that's really true. Not sure that 
would make sense, but whatever. Upon learning of the missing planes, they flew back into the canyon to take a closer look at where they had seen smoke earlier in the day and saw the wreckage. They tentatively identified the constellation's tail and, after landing, called TWA to report their finding. Some reporters, one named Bill Dever, a 20-year-old for the Arizona Daily Sun, hired a Cessna 180 to go search for the crash, then spotted the huge super constellation down and burning in pieces on the shoulder of a butte in the canyon that's called Temple Butte. Then, a mile north of it, they saw the United DC-7, which was absolutely exploded into fragments against the south face of another butte called Chuar Butte. Yikes. Earlier that afternoon, Air Force pilot First Lieutenant Miles Bird was mowing his lawn when a phone call summoned him to nearby Luke Air Force Base in Arizona. Bird took off with another pilot. I love that his name is Bird. It just He's a pilot. And he's a pilot and his name is Bird. It's B-U-R-D, so it's not B-I-R-D. But, <laughs> but if your name is Bird, you need to fly. Yeah, yeah. It's just like in your name. I just love that his name it's is true. Bird. It's true. So Bird took off with <laughs> another pilot and a flight surgeon in one H-19 helicopter and headed north, also accompanied by a second H-19 flown by First Lieutenant Daryl Strong. And the, if you're going to be a lieutenant, your name ought to be Strong. I yeah, just, Bird and Strong. It sounds like two great guys to good. handle this situation. They were the situation. men for the job. They were. They landed in the parking lot of a hotel near the Little Colorado River. At dawn the next day, Bird and Strong took off in one H-19 and Captain Jim Womack and First Lieutenant Phil Prince. That one doesn't quite fit as much, but that's okay. <laughs> took off in the other. By then, the crew of an amphibious aircraft, an SA-16 Albatross from Hamilton Air Force Base in California, had spotted what they assumed was the United wreckage, but they couldn't land for confirmation. Bird and Strong flew back and forth at random over the canyon and were about to head to Grand Canyon Airport to refuel when Bird spotted a glint of Chuar Butte. With nothing flat to set down on, he touched one wheel to the ground and the flight surgeon leaned out and grabbed a piece of the wreckage. They landed back at Grand Canyon Village and Bird told the waiting reporters, We found the crash and we have a piece to verify it. The reporters went crazy. So crazy they even besieged the pilots when they went into the bathroom. Of course. Oh, why why do we always end the up press. with these stories oh of just the press being <laughs> stupid? Because, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> these flyovers had confirmed everyone's deepest fears. 128 people had just been in a mid-air collision over the Grand Canyon and the planes were burning and in pieces. The odds of anyone surviving either of the high-impact collisions with the Paleozoic rock were zero to none. Oh, gosh. Early the next morning, the undersheriff of Coconino County flew his own small Urkoop single-engine plane. There's a lot of planes in this. There, I know nothing about any I don't any know planes, anything either, so... But <laughs> there's those, a, lots those of plane planes buffs out here. there, you... You're going to love this episode. Hopefully, hopefully you know what we're talking about because we don't. <laughs> and you might tell us we're pronouncing something, something funky, right. yeah. but, um, you know, it's okay. We're doing our best here. 
So the undersheriff flew his own single-engine plane to confirm for the sheriff's department where the collisions were. He said he started down into the canyon from the lower end, and it was a rough day. He also saw the terrible sight of the DC-7 disintegrating against the Chuar Butte. Then he also saw the Super Constellation wreckage. His small plane bucked with strong turbulence, and as he pulled up out of the canyon, he was hit with even worse turbulence. He said, After I saw those two planes, my own plane flipped over and I was flying upside down. Gas spilled out on me. God, I thought I was a goner. Then the next batch of turbulence flipped me right back over again. There was almost just a whole nother crash that day. Just because. Catastrophe. Because of the winds and, you know, everything going on. But it just kind of goes to show, like, how bad, you know, the winds could be there. Do you think it's just because it's, like, this giant hole in the ground so that there's more room for the wind to move? What the air is doing, yeah, I'm, I'm assuming... Anyone Again, not good at weather, weather buffs. either. <laughs> weather buffs, if there's any of you out there, you uh, let us know. Recovering the bodies would be a very dangerous and gruesome undertaking. And all of the agencies involved, the TWA, United Airlines, the Civil Aviation Administration, the Civil Aeronautics Board, the National Park Service, the FBI, the U.S. Air Force, (laughs) five separate Army rescue teams, and the Coconino County Sheriff, coroner, and attorney. They all tried to be helpful and make something happen. Finally, on the afternoon of the third day, Park Superintendent McLaughlin and Chief Ranger Coffin, dot, 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 yikes, got a top official from each of the agency together in one room and somehow orchestrated the chaos. The crash sites were inaccessible by road and too remote to reach on foot. Helicopters were needed to recover remains and wreckage. The army jumped at the chance to do the recovery. Their aircraft arrived at the Bare Bones Grand Canyon Airport mid-morning on Sunday, and Operation Granite Mountain began. So I'm going to tell you about the crash cleanup of the TWA Super Constellation. And then Taylor is going to tell you about the next one just to keep it from getting confusing. Because I got confused so many times with the different ways that they called each plane. And I just kept thinking, which plane are we talking about? (laughs) Early on July 2nd, Captain Spriggs and Chief Warrant Officer Proctor took off in an H-21 with about a half ton of equipment and five searchers. The helicopter left three searchers on the southern rim of the canyon to reduce weight and dropped into the canyon. Spriggs and many of the Army pilots had flown in Korea's mountainous terrain, but they had never encountered anything as rugged as the Grand Canyon inside of the canyon so, it's, so they it's were not flying just walls going in the down. canyon or they're flying above the canyon no they've had to fly down into, into the it, canyon that's where they had crashed because it had crashed okay. into a butte in the canyon dang that's crazy yeah however the pilots easily negotiated the landing on a small pinnacle about 60 yards from the main wreckage at the twa super constellation site which had an easier access than the other crash. It had wrecked on Temple Butte at 34,000 feet. It had hit at a steep angle and upside down. Oof. 
After offloading, they returned to the rim to ferry the remaining searchers. That first day, the searchers filled five rubberized crash bags containing human remains. Only a few articles were unscathed, including a toy boat and 148 letters that somehow survived from 66 pounds of U.S. mail. Mixed with the debris was the left wingtip of the United Airlines DC-7. So yeah, the wingtip of the other plane Hmm. was in the crash. Yikes. Fabric covering this wingtip matched the interior ceiling fabric of the Super Constellation. So somehow, I mean, it literally tore into the ceiling of the other plane. Army pilots made three more flights into the canyon that morning, hauling government and TWA officials along with more gear and removing the crash bags. By 10 o'clock a.m., 60-knot winds and severe turbulence shut down flying, a pattern that would repeat over the next two days as the H-21s shuttled in personnel and supplies and carried out 21 more crash bags of human remains. Later examination of the TWA wreckage, notes a collision report, indicated that the left wing of the United DC-7 had slashed sideways and downwards across the rear of the TWA constellation, ripping off the latter's tail and rear fuselage. The plane, tailless, probably dropped, spewing things from the cabin over miles of desert landscape. No passenger had ever been killed on board a super constellation before. Wow. We get another glimpse of how horrific the wreckage was by the deputy Coconino County attorney as he flew by helicopter to within 50 yards of the wreckage of the TWA super constellation. He was horrified. He said, quote, There could be no one left alive. Blackened, charred bodies dotted the ground among the debris. The stench was sickening. A part of the fuselage contained the body of what we thought was a woman. We filled 28 bags with remains and one with personal effects and airmail letters. They are sights I never want to see again, Air Force helicopter team member Donald Hunter of Greenfield, Indiana, told reporters after seeing the TWA wreckage on Temple Butte. The most of any person I saw was half a woman. Volunteers helped carry dozens of rubber body bags filled with remains to the canyon rim. In those pre-DNA testing days, only 30 of the 128 killed were ever identified. And most of them were from the TWA flight too. So Spriggs and Proctor next headed to the United Airlines site at Chuar Butte, which jutted 1,400 feet above the river on a nearly vertical slope. This was the most dangerous of the two sites. The combination of terrain and high temperatures created swirling winds and violent drafts that shot the helicopter up and down like an elevator and thwarted two landing attempts. That sounds fun. 
Yeah. After the two big crashes and you trying to... Yeah. That just seems not fun. Terrifying. Over the next four days, the climbers trekked up newly named Crash Canyon Mm -hmm. and began the final challenging 800-foot ascent of Chuar Butte to the DC-7 at 4,050 feet. So, 800-foot ascent. Wow. I mean... Just to get to... butte is huge. Yeah. But after two days of sweltering technical climbing during early July, ugh, yuck, yuck, and of hammering hundreds of bolts into the weather decaying wall, the climbers still had not reached the impact site. They had, however, thoroughly terrified themselves. I'm sure they I can't had. Even imagine. I've done repelling a couple times just to make myself do it. I'm terrified of heights, <laughs> but I've done it a couple times. I cried both times. <laughs> And it was like 50 feet or something, you know, yeah, I mean, it wasn't not 800. Even, right. It, yeah. You know, like maybe 70. It was not that much, but it's, I just still thought it was so scary. So I think these climbers are super brave. Yeah. The helicopters dropped off a 13 crack mountain climbing team to complete the task at the more difficult crash site. Five climbers were from Colorado and eight from Switzerland. Makes sense? Yeah, it really does. If you've been to Colorado or Switzerland, it makes sense. (laughs) They've got some good climbers. Captain Spriggs landed them one by one with his helicopter in a very hairy location on a narrow ledge deemed impossible by the experts, about 30 feet above the wreckage of the United DC-7. The rescue team set up their base camp on this 10-foot-wide ledge. Oh my gosh, the anxiety that is filling me right now. This is a hard pass for Lachelle. And for Taylor. (laughs) I do roller coasters and stuff like that. I'm not scared of that. I've done zip lining. That's pretty high up there. But like being on a ledge and looking down or being Mm -hmm. close to a ledge, that scares me for some reason. I can do like these huge roller coasters, no problem. But being on a ledge and looking down is terrifying. Vertigo is my problem is everything starts to move. Oh, no, I just get bad anxiety. It just freaks me out. Well, the vertigo causes bad anxiety. <laughs> well, makes sense. <laughs> this, me, I don't like start wobbling or anything. It's literally just like sheer terror. Right. So I, 10, 10 foot wide ledge to me would feel like no, two. No, thank you. Yes, you know? exactly. These guys are You could be standing in the heroes. middle, like in the fetal yeah. position, you know? Yeah, sitting against the wall with my arms touching if the wall. If there was a wall. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> For the next several days, they pried from the crevices and vertical cracks, corpses and fragments of corpses that had been pressure injected into fissures and then subjected to six days of scorching heat, which you can only imagine the smell. Uh, It's just so, it's so horrific that they were, it just hit so hard that everything just went into all the cracks yeah, and crevices just like pushed butte. everything just so gross in one of the most hazardous operations the u.s army had ever undertaken their pilots brought their h-21 flying banana helicopter down through the superheated and treacherous air to evacuate these bodies they removed the united victims using a Tyrolean traverse is what I would think. again we're not climbers so here's another thing that you guys can uh, help us on <laughs> um, a system of ropes and pulleys devised by the Swiss to hoist the bags up the cliff to the waiting helicopters it was an absolute nightmare here 
they said. We're just going to pause for a second and just say that this next part is kind of a little gruesome. So if you have kids around or you don't want to listen to it, then you can always skip ahead. But right here is where we kind of get into some more details. It's it's, been gross so far, but it's just a little more It's a little bit more detail and kind of gross. During the afternoon, two paramedics left from the treacherous peak where the United plane was down. They reported a horrific scene, charred bodies, and they had found only one that was not burned. Some of the bodies crumpled to ash as they lifted them. Aluminum parts of the plane had melted and run in rivulets between the rocks. Missing limbs. They found a baby's body across the arms of a woman. A penny embedded in a woman's wedding ring. Oh, gosh. Just the impact was... Was so harsh that they found all these crazy... And so hot. Like I said, the with all that fuel and everything burning, that... Literally, the plane melted. Yeah. So, finally, on July 10th, one last helicopter dipped below the rim for a final search. In its haste to return to Fort Huatuca, the Army abandoned most equipment and supplies. A 1976 cleanup crew later found sea rations, ropes, a pitten, and an empty can of Schlitz beer. (laughs) Of course. Of course. I mean, who wouldn't want to drink after dealing with that i can only imagine the air force pilots and crew along with 24 army officers and warrant officers received medals at the white house which i think is really cool they really deserve that the collision was the worst peacetime civilian airline disaster in all of commercial aviation history up to this time The carnage of this accident was so hideous that it alone spurred the formation of the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA. One of the things that I wanted to mention is they talked later about the collision scenarios. Um, They speculated and reconstructed to where they think that the DC-7 was going 345 miles per hour overtaking the TWA Super Constellation at 308 miles per hour from above and behind as each plane veered around a large thunderhead. So there was this Mm. big cloud in between them. And so since they were on visual sight rules, they just couldn't see each other. Mm. And as the Super Constellation was maybe gaining some altitude, and so in that position, each plane would have been in the other's Kind of their blind spot. Oh. And I read that it's really almost impossible for a pilot to see another airplane, even when it's right beside them, especially depending on the pink colors or if there's a sun glare in, you know, mm-hmm. on it. And the worst part of all is that the captain of the DC-7 had no idea that there was anyone else even up there near 21,000 feet in his airspace. What? The traffic control had not advised him of the TWA's new 21,000-foot altitude. Why? I don't really understand, but all of this became a huge catalyst for change. Mm -hmm. And so this is kind of one of those landmark accidents that happened that really made some things happen. And so about a week after the accident, there was a congressional hearing that was held to start to find out like what had gone wrong. And accident investigators determined that 
the United pilot had deviated 25 miles south off his course, and TWA pilot had climbed 2,000 feet higher than was prudent, and had also deviated five miles off his own route. And although the pilots had simply failed to see each other, the U.S.'s antiquated air traffic control system, Mm -hmm. which relied heavily on visual cues by the pilots and estimates by the controllers, was really largely to blame for this. Do you think that they were used to doing, like, visual because they were flying smaller airplanes for a while? And this is kind of the era of, like, the big commercial flights coming about and they just like had no Mm -hmm. idea what they were doing yes they were smaller and they were also slower yeah they became bigger and faster and i think there actually was a lot of crashes before this yeah this had just been the biggest one and so this kind of made Made them go we we've got to do some things maybe we need to change how we're doing things So as a result of the investigation, Congress passed legislation in 1957 that formed what became the FAA and the National Transportation Safety Board. The FAA updated the ancient air traffic control system in the United States. Working in concert, the two federal organizations transformed commercial aviation into the safest form of transportation in the world. Once they had the remains and they were ready to bury them, both the Hopi and the Navajo tribes recognized that all of these people had died on their sacred grounds. Mm -hmm. And so both tribes held 24-hour prayer vigils for the victims. And the entire city of Flagstaff and all of its businesses closed down in respect to the deceased. Wow. Nearly 400 relatives and friends of the 70 people who died in the crash of the TWA Super Constellation attended a mass funeral service in Flagstaff, Arizona. There were 67 caskets, and they were lowered into a common grave on July 8, 1956. So we've mostly talked about how the, the TWA victims were buried, 67 of them, in Flagstaff, but the majority of the 29 bodies that were recovered from the DC-7 were buried unidentified in the Grand Canyon Cemetery. I didn't know there was a cemetery in Grand Canyon. I haven't been there either. And I know that that there's a memorial marker. I know. (laughs) On the list. On the list. Grand Canyon Cemetery. Who goes to the Grand Canyon to go to a cemetery? Lachelle Scott. (laughs) (laughs) Well, true. (laughs) But there was a big service here in Flagstaff for the TWA flight, and it was a combined service of different faiths, Protestants, Roman Catholics, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the Jewish faith. They all came together and had a big service for the people. And like I said, I have a picture to share of that. I was able to find some things about a few of those who died in this tragedy. So I wanted to just mention a few of their names, say a little bit about them. Yeah. And honor them. Honor them. And these were from the TWA flight. Most of these worked for TWA. Okay. And so almost everyone aboard the flight was someone that worked for them in some way. Oh. For whatever reason. I don't really know 
why that was, but Mm -hmm. this was more of a personnel flight. And maybe that even makes more sense as to why they decided to do the scenic route, do the scenic route. Yeah, because it wasn't like it was a rush or anything. Yeah, so it was like families of people that worked at TWA or members of the company. So one person we're going to talk about is Hostess Beth Ellis Davis. And a hostess in those days was Was the the flight attendant. The stewardess, yeah. Joined TWA in 1953 as a student hostess at Kansas City. She was 24 years old. And was planning to enter Cornell University in September to complete her master's degree. Mm. She was survived by her parents, Mr. and Mrs. Milbrin M. Davis, which is sad because it sounds like she was their only baby. Yeah, isn't that terribly sad? Yeah. Another hostess, Tracine E. Armbruster, she joined TWA in 1950 as a student hostess. She was just 30 years old. Based also, most of these people were based in Kansas City. They were flying were they to flying Kansas to? City. So they were probably going home like after their. Mm-hmm. And maybe job that's or why so many from TWA. And she was survived by her parents, Mr. and Mrs. Tracy Armbruster. And so I kind of felt like, is it the same for these parents? Like their only child only died? Um, Secretary Joseph J. Kite. Joined TWA in March 1945 as an accountant in Kansas City. He became a staff assistant in construction and design in 1946 and an administrative assistant in 1952. He was 41 years old. His wife, Marie, and two daughters, Sharon, nine, and Linda, six, also perished in the accident. He is survived by his mother, Mrs. Clara B. Kite. So his whole family, and I have a picture of all of the caskets laying on the ground there where they're buried now at Mm -hmm. the Flagstaff Cemetery at that time. And every once in a while, there's these little shorter, smaller caskets, and it is so, so sad. Don't like that. His whole family. But I don't know. Maybe going all together is better. Well, that's kind of what I, I mean, it sounds awful, but like. I wouldn't want to be the one that survived when my husband mm-hmm. would die or vice versa. I'm sure he wouldn't want me to, you know, we've to be the a, only surviving. We've got a few stories later about how terrible it was for some people after oh. this. So, I don't know. Maybe maybe they were the lucky ones. I'd rather have our whole family go I together would too. and get like to heaven tragic. and be like, oh, hey, hey we're all here in heaven. I yeah. Whoops. <laughs> it's really tragic, of course, but yeah. I get why yeah. you would all want to go together but and not be the last did. one. Yeah. Not be the only one alive still. Yeah, sad, right? Yeah. Carolyn Ruth Wiley joined TWA in March 1953 as a reservation sales agent in Kansas, Kansas City. She transferred to Cleveland in February 1956 as a reservations agent. She was 23 years old. She's survived by her father, J. Boyd Wiley, and a sister, Sue. Dennis Joseph Phelan joined in February 1956 in the staff engineering department, again, in Kansas City. He was supervisor engineering aerodynamics. Phelan was 33 years old and is survived by his wife, Dorothy, two daughters, Mary Ann, two 
and a daughter born July 1st. So the day after he died. So think about that July 1st. This was June 30th. So, gee, I wonder why she went into labor. Oh, gosh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, it's just so tragic. Also survived by his parents and a brother and sister. Stephen Robert Bishop was a file clerk in the secretarial department in Kansas City. He was only 19 and was survived by his parents, Mr. and Mrs. James Bishop, Medford, Oregon, four sisters and a brother. Thomas Edward Ashton Jr. was a junior passenger agent at Albuquerque. In 1945, he was promoted to personnel representative in Kansas City and to training instructor in 1949. He became suggestion plan investigator in 1950, later was named job analyst in wage and salary, and was promoted to suggestion plan manager in March 1953. This man did everything. (laughs) In June 1956, Ashton was named supervisor of industrial relations in the Western region and was to be based in Los Angeles. Ashton was 34 years old, was survived by his wife, Barbara, a son, Thomas E., 10, a daughter, Jennifer, 7, his parents, and a brother and a sister. Richard Darling Payne was a reservations agent at Kansas City, and he had transferred to Los Angeles in 1951 and in September 1953 was promoted to reservations agent in charge. He also served for four years and eight months in the Air Force. He was survived by his wife, Maxine. His daughter, Monica, and his son, Richard, were on board the flight with their father. Oh, my gosh. Oh, this poor mama. She lost her children and her husband. See, that's what we're saying. You just maybe going together (laughs) might be better. Obviously, there are like, there's more. I I mean, there's so so many people. I found that I found a website so, yeah. that had a little bit about them. And it was actually from um, TWA websites. So that was kind of cool. I found a newspaper article that said, Captain Robert F. Shirley dies in big airliner crash. Talking about, it was the pilot of the United Airlines flight. The entire Palo Verde Peninsula was saddened by the death of Captain Robert F. Shirley, 48, pilot of one of the two giant airliners that crashed in Arizona's wilds. He resided with his wife, Mary, and daughter, Linda, 11. United Airlines said Captain Shirley was a man of many years' experience in the air. He went to work for UAL in 1937 and had been flying DC-7 planes since that time they were first put into use. His co-workers described the former Fresno High School athlete as one of the company's top flyers. So then I found some stories. This was a website that was just dedicated to this crash and those that had lost their lives. And there was a place that you could put stories in Mm -hmm. from the families. And I won't tell the whole thing, but there just was a few things that really stuck out to me. This was from the son of Leon David Cook Jr., who was on the flight 718, and his name was Raymond, and he said that his dad went by Dave. 
He was a chemical engineer, graduate of the University of Chicago. He was articulate in writing and speech. He had several patents on various types of chemical coatings. And using his engineering skills, he designed and built a two-story porch on the back of our home. He was very driven. His financial goals were first to earn a million dollars in his lifetime. Secondly, to earn a million dollars a year. He loved to fish and travel. And Dave was also an artist and he loved to play the ukulele. Women thought he was very handsome, even teenage girls my age. (laughs) At the time of the accident, our family consisted of my dad, my mom, Dorothy, who was 36, my older brother, David, myself, and my younger sister. Now, remember the last time I saw him saying goodbye. We used to kiss each other when he went on a trip. I instead shook his hand to say goodbye. He said, I guess you're getting older now. My father had a premonition the night before he left home for Los Angeles. In the middle of the night, he asked my mother what she would do if he died on this trip. Isn't that scary? And the funny thing is she just kind of made a sharp little quip about that she would get a lawyer and sue the hell out of the airlines. And he literally did die on this trip. And then it talks about how, you know, he found out that day and how they were waiting to find out any information you know he was missing and Mm. as the evening progressed they told us that the wreckage of a TWA plane reported missing as well had been identified in the Grand Canyon as we went to bed that night no word on the United flight as I went to sleep that night I thought my father would be found walking out of the Grand Canyon a little dirty unshaved sunburned but alive and I kept that thought for years to come in the morning, we awoke to 100-plus magazine, newspaper, and television people out on our front lawn. Ugh. My mother said, as children, we shouldn't speak to the media. And she assigned a family friend to give out the information. But then that friend kept getting it all wrong and mm. incorrect. And so then the mother was like, all right, nobody's talking to the media. <laughs> and they couldn't go out and play. But he said neighbors were very kind and brought all kinds of food for several days. And then later in the day, they were told that the United wreckage had been spotted and it quickly became apparent that there would be no survivors. United wreckage was found on Chihuahua Butte, a very difficult place to access to recover any remains. And then he talks about, you know, how that how that went. In the end, half of the bodies were identified and half were not. So the rest of the story is just really, really sad. And Mm. they had no money. The mom borrowed from relatives. He had a small, you know, business insurance policy that helped a little bit. Um, After about a month, two representatives from United Airlines arrived at our home to tell my mother that my father's remains were not identified, but that it was determined he had perished in the accident. And he says, on that morning, it was my mother, my grandmother, and me. And the representatives were very kind, but my mother lost it. It was very difficult to see and hear. My mother totally lost control of herself, crying and sobbing. She left the front room where we were sitting. My grandmother tried to console her, but to no avail. She basically cried all day, which I, I would mean, do too. You, you would. Yeah. In early August, there was a memorial service at the Grand Canyon for the relatives of the passengers on the United flight. He says there were several beautiful flower arrangements at the service with a large tent to cover the relatives. Most of the service was quiet and refined. 
until the end when one woman started screaming and threw herself on the graves. They tried to restrain her, but it was very difficult. The service was very well done. From there on out, the realities of living hit home. The mother was broke, and she began thinking of trying to sue the airlines like she had said that she was gonna, Mm -hmm. and she filed for social security benefits for the children. She took classes at a local business school to try and um, become a secretary, and she finally did that, but she just never got over the stress of her husband's death, and it was just really overwhelming for her. And then she had this son go away to like military school because she just couldn't, you know, do everything. Mm. They did have a trial and their case was settled for $100,000. But he just said the three children were never close after the accident and just felt as if the mother and the children just kind of fell apart. And he says, my mother died in 1971 drunk. She drove over an embankment, dropping 50 feet and landing on the roof as the car flipped. My brother committed suicide in 1978. He shot himself while intoxicated. Oh, gosh. I was borderline alcoholic until the age of 45. He says, in talking with other family members that survived, the survivor families, he just discovered that the scars run really deep for all families of disaster. And the present... And attention, they're very intense after a disaster happens, but the real story is the long-term effect of disaster on people. All of the numerous ways they are affected. I do believe today that much more counseling takes place to assist in the adjustments that need to happen. But in that day, counseling didn't exist. And so he says... Not that kind of counseling. Right, He said, no matter what life throws at you, the circumstances, the pain, we must all go on and accept the hand we are dealt. With help, I have done that over time. I feel for those that cannot. I'm sure that makes for a miserable life. Sad. That's super sad. Yeah. Bummed me out this episode. (laughs) I know. I'm like, is there... Is there a happy ending? Is there a happy ending here? Uh, You know, but sometimes there just isn't happy endings in life. Unfortunately, we live in the real world and it's kind of how life is sometimes. It's got to take the good and the bad. Right. And this is just one of those. It took a lot of really young people. It took fathers and mothers and people's children. And and death is one of those really hard things. It's a hard Mm -hmm. thing to get over. Especially when it's sudden like that. Mm -hmm. Makes it extra hard. Right. And so anyway, one of the purposes that I felt that have come out of the podcast is is for us to kind of talk more about death and about that you can talk about it, you yeah. know, and that people need to talk about it. And if you know someone that has lost someone in their life, talk to them about it. Talk to them about their loved one. Yeah. And everyone mourns differently, so they do. I think just asking is okay. Yeah. In a gentle way, not be like, hey, why don't you ever talk about so and so? We need to talk about him, you know. <laughs> Just being, bringing it up and being gentle, but kind, right. of course. And of course, of course. Because it's hard, especially again when it's sudden. 
like that. You don't just expect it. Some grace and kindness for those that lose their families. Like we talked about in some of the Victorian era episodes, like they were expected to grieve for years. Mm -hmm. And now it just kind of seems like, well, it's been a couple weeks and you're back at work. You should just be happy and getting everything done and just doing what you did before. So yeah. Anyway, just a little reminder to reach out to people who need it because it's, it's, can be, it can be really, really hard. We'd like to dedicate this episode to all of those that lost their family members in this horrible tragedy with love and recognition of each of the lives that they lived and honoring their stories. This was Stones, Bones, and Shadows. You can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stonesbonesandshadowspodcast.com. Also, don't forget to check us out on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and even TikTok, where you can interact with us. As always, we love to hear from our listeners. Thank you.